and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kurt Staley, a.k.a. That Plastics Guy. This is the place where I share my almost four decades of experience in the industry, sometimes bringing on a guest, sometimes going solo, but discussing the topics and trends that affect our industry nonetheless. Today's podcast is sponsored by Simcoe Plastics, where we have a passion for polymers. You can visit us at www.simcoplastics.com or contact us at info at simcoplastics.com. So I think that everybody that goes through the podcasting process, starting from zero and, and getting up to, uh, you know, first walking and then running speed, certainly goes through, a, I guess, this process where they try and find their voice and get it in a groove. And I'm in that stage right now. So I do thank you very much for tuning into a second episode and uh, letting me talk to you a little bit about what's going on in the industry and how that will affect uh, not only industry, but consumers. Um, that's really it, how it's going to affect consumers. And the very first thing I want to talk about, I think is going to have a huge potential impact on consumers of plastic goods, which is all of us. So first of all, big shout out to uh, my friends at Canadian Plastics. I broadcast from Ontario, Canada. And if you are listening in Canada, I strongly recommend that you hop over to the Canadian Plastics website. Please just Google them and at least sign up for their weekly newsletter, if not subscribe to their magazine. Um, the number of voices in our industry in this country, well, it's a lot less than it used to be. And Canadian Plastics is there, and I think it's really important that we show them their support. They bring a lot of good information um, to our community, to our industry, and if you're not talking with them or getting their information, I really encourage you to do so and to support uh, a great publication. So, let's talk about let's talk about what I found on their newsletter um, that came through earlier this week. The federal government is proposing a plastics registry, and at this point, seeking input on a plastics registry. And I'm quoting directly from the Canadian Plastics article, <clears throat> excuse me, the registry will be used as a tool to monitor and track plastic on the Canadian market from the time it's produced to the end of its life. So uh, trying to get a perspective from cradle to grave on what plastics are used and um, what plastics end up going to landfill, excuse me. <clears throat> now, on the surface, uh, I suppose you could argue that this idea has its merit, so we understand the tonnage of plastic involved uh, from a Canadian processor standpoint and have some accurate numbers on what we take to the landfill. But in practice, how is this going to function? Um from a standpoint of a material producer, the actual folks who are making polymers, taking monomers, polymerizing them, turning them into something that the processing community can use, could you get their production numbers? Sure, that's easy. That's no problem. Could you get numbers from people who import plastics into Canada? Well, sure, that data actually, I would imagine, would exist with uh, the Canadian Border Agency, and forgive me, I don't know the exact acronym, but um, the government body that oversees and is responsible for letting anything into this country, there's paperwork on it. So that side, 
I think could be doable. So we would have a very firm number or reasonably firm number, uh, perhaps from a, a policy standpoint, to understand what comes into our country. Okay, great. Now, if you want to track how that is turned into product, this is where things get a little bit tricky. Oh, by the way, before I go there, I also would like to mention that if you're going to create another government departmental body to do this activity, um, that is probably going to be adding bodies to the civil service. And that is more than likely going to be a contributing factor for ongoing upward pressure on taxation levels. So we pay for this. Um, so just bear that in mind. I don't see another way around it. Uh, if you're going to have bodies to uh, pull this data together, present it, track it, manage it, those bodies cost money. And that means more tax dollars. So what is the net benefit of this? Well, before I offer my thought on that, I'd just like to walk you through industry. If you have any company that is processing plastic, you're going to, by the sounds of this, have to have some reporting mechanism for the tonnage that's purchased and the tonnage of product that is made for it. Now, I, I'm making some, um, I'm drawing some conclusions, but I would think if you're trying to track product cradle to grave, you want to track input and output at every stage. I think that would be a reasonable way to interpret this. So again, in a plastics processing environment, these are simply factories uh, with people doing their jobs, and this would likely mean hiring another body to coordinate or report this, or does it end up going to somebody who's already almost fully utilized and they have to look after another government reporting thing? I guess my point is, from a plastic processor standpoint, this is going to add to the uh, overhead, whether it's a new hire or figuring out some way to spread the job amongst existing hires, but maybe having to pay them more to take on more responsibilities. And guess what? That is going to reflect in more expensive goods and services uh, to the general population. It's only a question of time. Um, so I think that is strike two against uh, the Canadian population in terms of potential, and I want to really stress potential costs. So having said that, I do need to state that I am not in favor of wasting plastic. Look, for a plastic processor, the cost of their input materials, plastics, hydro, water, labor, the cost of plastics is the overwhelming largest factor in their cost structure. Um, some numbers I've looked at recently would lead me to believe it could be about 55% of the cost structure. I've heard tale of some of uh, products um, that are more of the shoot and ship variety. So very little post-secondary, no post-secondary operations. Basically the parts come out of the, uh, the machinery and go into a box and that's it. And those situations could it be maybe 70, 75% of the part cost? Quite possibly. No one wants to waste plastic. No one. Absolutely not. This, from a business standpoint, is shooting yourself in your foot. No one wants to waste. And once the products are made and shipped and sort of go out in the wild, so to speak, you can't realistically say that people in our community 
are interested in seeing those products end up in landfill or, you know, sitting on a roadside in a pile. No one wants to see that. So if we are going to ask the industry to track usage of product, what is the end game? Is the end game to try and create more product that is recyclable? Well, that's really interesting. Um, as I mentioned in the first podcast, I had involvement in a, a business that was uh, looking to recycle plastics coming from Canadian hospitals. So medical waste, clean medical waste. I could tell you when you focus on one sector, that increases your odds of having some success. But even focusing in one sector, you have situations um, with those who are involved in the program putting incorrect materials in the stream that you're trying to recycle. So what does this mean? Why am I talking about this? It means that recycling material costs money. This is not a simple undertaking, even on a trial, a pilot basis. It is not a simple undertaking. And if we want to increase levels of recycling compliance in Canada, uh, there are some things that we can do. We can minimize the number of resins that we use, thermoplastic resins, um, and keep them as compatible as possible. And I can give you an in instance or an example. In the film and packaging sector, there are products out there, and they're excellent products that perform very specific functions. And I'm not trying to, uh, to speak ill of these products. I'm just simply using it as an example where we have packaging film that might have three or four layers of dissimilar materials that are sandwiched together to create um, to create a very effective packaging product. If it's a vapor barrier or a moisture barrier, whatever the case, um, something to ensure food product freshness, um, these are all really important things. But when it comes to recycling these things, it makes it almost impossible because you can't take them apart mechanically. Um, and if someone can invent a way, if there is a way, I would certainly love to hear about it. Uh, but trying to get these things apart in a cost-effective manner makes recycling very challenging. So I've heard numbers that recycling, um, it's about 9% of the plastics that we use. Personally, I think it's higher than that. Um, the material that's collected in the municipal blue bins that is sorted. Uh, it's sold off at auction and bales, and there are reprocessors that buy that material, and they make their um, reprocessed grades, which, again, go through the, the part processing or plastic processing part manufacturing uh, community. And we get lots and lots of useful things from materials that have had you know one, one go around in the system, so to speak. Um, would we would we like to see it higher? Of course we would. So what can we do? Well, I mentioned making products that have a more homogeneous homogeneity uh, to them and their composition. Um, that could be very helpful if we have more materials on in that same vein that are based in a uh, polyolefin structure. So that includes not only polypropylene and polyethylene, but soft touch materials. Um, Think things like uh, automotive interior trim, where it's not leather or vinyl wrap. Those are injection molded materials 
those can be compatible and they are compatible with polypropylene and polyethylene bumper feedstock, um, you know, automotive bumper covers, that type of material. It's all compatible. We get into trouble when we start using things like nylons and urethanes, um, PVC, even though there certainly is a, a backlash against PVC and has been for quite some time. The material itself is very, very cost-effective and has some very specific properties to it. Um, that's why it's used on, say, for example, vinyl siding. The material is inherently flame retardant. That's a good thing to have on your home. Can it be recycled? Well, yes and no. If you take it to a local dump, it may end up not being recycled. Um, if it's kept within the building products community, there's a possibility or it, the possibility of it being recycled would greatly increase. So I think we have to maybe look at how we're handling good product that is still eligible for recycling. And by that, I mean material that hasn't degraded in sunlight to the point where it comes apart chemically. The chemical composition is, um, is compromised. We don't want to recycle those materials because they can actually create, um, well, it can ruin a batch of good material if you mix in something that's uh, that's sort of coming apart or, or um, just, you know, it's it's been damaged by sun or whatever the case. So I think we just have to be a little bit careful about that. Um, now, to that end, the article in Canadian Plastics, again, I urge you to sign up for their newsletter. Um, flexible packaging, it talks about flexible packaging made in... Um, multiple types of materials, making it difficult to uh, recycle. I talked a little bit about that. Um, and sorry, I'm just having a read of the article as well. I can't memorize everything. Uh, so flexible packaging, it is actually taking over in many cases from a rigid plastic packaging. And if you consider things like the... Uh, uh, PET, you know, your water bottle material. Think about how many things that have gone from cardboard or, or heavy-duty paper um, cardstock, I think is the correct term, cardstock packaging to a clear PET. And from there, how many things have further evolved from clear PET as sort of a semi-rigid product um, to a flexible film-type packaging. So, I mean, it's great that we're moving to less and less plastic in our packaging, but what we're creating is packaging that's actually a little bit more difficult to capture and recycle. So based on my own, and, and admittedly, limited experience, uh, if you look at jurisdictions across our country, and I'm sure it's fairly common in any other jurisdiction, um, there's a lack of similar materials at a jurisdiction's disposable disposal to process these recycled materials. So if uh, one jurisdiction has a subcontractor that can successfully reprocess flexible packaging, that's great, but maybe the adjacent jurisdictions, municipalities, townships, whatever the case, may not have access to a contractor who can reprocess these things. So Jumping on the plastics and saying we have a problem is perhaps one thing and it's legitimate, 
but we also have to ensure that the playing field is level and we have access to the same equipment and same processes, same type of equipment, doesn't have to be the same brand, but same types of processes in neighboring jurisdictions so we can we can successfully reprocess, reclaim and reprocess as much plastic in our municipal blue bins as possible. How many of you out there are in a municipality that can accept plastic bags? And I know we've gotten away from them. Um, you know, that ban went into place. And I have some opinions on that, which I may share in a later episode. But how many of you have a jurisdiction that can accept bags? Bags are highly reprocessable. It just takes a certain piece of equipment to do it, a certain style of equipment to do it. So why haven't we been doing that? We could reprocess so many things that are easy. It's low-hanging fruit. You know, just yesterday, I got some furniture for, uh, for my office where I'm doing my podcasting. And that furniture came in um, a box with styrene, expandable styrene foam, styrofoam. Can't really do too much with that economically, but it is recoverable. <clears throat> and how many of those pieces, actually, how many of the furniture pieces came in clear plastic bags? I'm going to keep them and reuse them for household garbage and whatnot. But if someone wasn't inclined to do that, there really is no way to get them into a re like a recycling stream, which is quite unfortunate because there is so much product that comes wrapped in polyethylene bags. And they're not difficult, folks. They're not difficult to recycle. So I know I've sort of veered off from a government uh, mandate for a, a plastics registry, but I just want to drive the point home that there is so much more um, headroom to successfully recycle materials. And I hope that uh, private industry rises to the challenge to do that. Uh, next, you know, I just, I have to say, um, our federal government, and uh, full disclosure, I'm not a fan of our current federal government, and I'm trying to uh, control my cognitive bias here, uh, but our federal government has tried registries for other things, uh, and I, I don't even want to go down the path of what they've tried, because it's, this is not designed to be an overly political um, podcast or episode. But they didn't have success. And what they were trying to have a registry for in another section of government, discrete assets, uh, it was firearms. I may as well say it. The government was not successful. If you can't develop a program to track discrete assets like we do with motor vehicles for example how are we going to have a registry to track something as amorphous as the supply of plastics through multiple tiers of production manufacturing out to a consumer and then possibly what goes to landfill i i don't know i i just don't see it um, i see it costing a lot of taxpayer dollars that's what i see and that's what concerns me more than anything about this. So I promise you I will be following this issue. It's near and dear to my heart and all of my industry colleagues. And we will see what, uh, what comes out of it. Uh, there is a call for stakeholder input 
and I do plan on contacting or sending a note to uh, that individual in the federal government responsible for taking these things and expressing my concern, and uh, we'll see. I mean, it's part of the democratic process, so we may as well engage. It's quite important. Now, uh, I would just like to wrap this episode up with yet another um, another economic forecast for 2024, and this comes from a BDC uh, email that I received, and I talked about them in my last podcast, uh, Business Development uh, Bank of Canada. Uh, I would encourage you to go to their website. I believe it's bdc.ca and sign up for their newsletter. There is tremendous analysis. Um, what can I say? They really know what they're talking about, and I would highly recommend that um, that you get that information, and it is free to do so. So what can we expect in 2024? Per this newsletter, uh, we did have a slight drop in GDP in the third quarter, um, slightly rising unemployment rate, and still we, we're still stuck with higher interest rates. I think we're, we're at 5%, which historically is still fairly moderate, but the pace that the interest rates rose was the quickest in 40 years. And that economic shock to put on the brakes, to stop the uh, overinflationary uh, price levels that we experienced during COVID, uh, well, they've had their effect. Uh, now, this newsletter is not suggesting that we're in a recession, uh, but uh, to quote, and I, I will read this, um, the economy is not in recession, rather it's catching its breath after overheating in the aftermath of the pandemic. And I can tell you when I had my color business, uh, we were getting price increases seemingly on a weekly basis, uh, not only from our raw material suppliers, pigments, resins, and whatnot, uh, this came from transportation companies as they were grappling with rising fuel costs, uh, rising labor costs, labor shortage, which also necessitated bringing in sometimes higher paid temporary workers. And I say higher paid because when you bring in a temp, you have to pay all of their um, administrative costs and payroll costs, plus you're paying a temp agency. So they do typically cost more to bring on. So all of these things happen, prices spike, and I think we all felt the pain of that. Now, the slowdown, they're talking about it being necessary to restore a sustainable growth. And what is sustainable growth? Uh, Bank of Canada and uh, I, I think the United States Federal Reserve as well, I, I believe they're looking at about 2 to 2.5%. Two uh, this article talks about uh, 2% in Canada. And again, I think the United States is probably somewhere around there. So key interest rate at 5%. And uh, this newsletter is suggesting that maybe a rate cut uh, by mid this year, but they obviously can't commit to that. The Bank of Canada will do what the Bank of Canada needs to do to bring about stability. Uh, so... They're suggesting in this BDC newsletter an interest rate of about 3.5% uh, by the end of 2024. And I know that will be a welcome relief uh, for many people whose uh, mortgages have renewed or have chosen to stay on a variable rate mortgage. And of course, that impact on household spending affects everything in the supply chain. When discretionary income is burned up by rising cost of necessities, 
Well, that's less travel, less buying of the toys, less lessons for your children, less whatever the case. I, I think you know where I'm going with this. So, um, now, the one thing that uh, this newsletter points out, and I find this somewhat troubling, but I don't have the context to put it in, that Canadians owe $1.82 for every dollar of disposable income that they earn. And mortgage debt accounts for nearly 75% of total outstanding debt in the country. So um, the 75% of total debt doesn't bother me so much because really for most people, their houses are their biggest assets and the mortgage would be the biggest liability that they have. I mean, when you buy a house for a million dollars, if you have a six or $700,000 mortgage, well, obviously that's a completely different league than buying a fifty dollars or $60,000 car and maybe having to finance 80% of that. So the mortgage is the biggest deal that we all deal with for those of us who have them. But the $1.82 owing for every disposable dollar that the Canadian household generates, that is troublesome. That means that we're much more susceptible to interest rates and we're more susceptible to rate hikes. So, and I've said so way too many times, um, I guess we just need to keep deleveraging, paying off debt and getting ourselves back under control and having reasonable spending just as the Bank of Canada wants to have a reasonable rate of inflation. I think that's really what it's all about. It's just an extraordinarily painful process. And, you know, we're talking about financing costs. Um, yeah, I touched on that a little bit. Yeah, for, uh, for the newsletter, bdc.ca, and do sign up for it. It's just such a, a great piece of information that you can get on a regular basis, and it will help you to understand a little bit of what's going on. So that's really all I wanted to talk about on this show episode two. Uh, thank you so much for um, joining me again and uh, and sticking it out with me while I get my feet in this podcasting thing. Uh, I promise you it's going to get better and we're going to have some guests on in the not too distant future. And when we do, I think we're going to have some exciting things to talk about. I'm not going to tell you who's coming on, but I am working on it. And we're just going to have some great conversation and share what we know, and hopefully you learn something in the process. Having said that, thank you so much for joining me. Take care, and bye for now.